0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for Old Testament reading this morning to the book of Micah, one of our Old Testament prophets, and of course, it'll be a prophet that is cited in our sermon text this morning. Uh, Perhaps you are not familiar with the prophet Isaiah. I'm sorry, but the prophet Micah. Apparently, I'm not familiar with him, too. I can't even get his name right. But help us with our context for this morning's Old Testament reading. In chapter 4, the prophet speaks of the day when Zion, the kingdom of God, will be established. And the nations will flock to hear God's law and will lay down their swords. Yet at the same time, the prophet sees a particular problem, that uh, dark reality that David's throne still sits vacant. and That the nations have conspired against the people of God and have surrounded Israel on all sides. And that is the context that we find ourselves as the prophet Micah begins in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's another name for Judah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Here, the prophet Micah is speaking of that same promised child born of the virgin in Isaiah chapter 7. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2 for our New Testament reading and sermon text this morning, we'll look at the first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, here citing Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary as mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. All the grass withers, it perishes like the flowers of the field, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word this evening, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And I think historically speaking, it's fair to say that Americans have not been the biggest fan of British monarchs. I think it's certainly odd then uh, when so many Americans became obsessed with the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton about a decade back. Have you ever heard of this thing called the American Revolution? Why is everybody obsessed with British kings and queens and marriages? You know, I had friends who uh, woke up in the middle of the night to watch the wedding live on television, four o'clock in the morning for them. You'd see magazines lining the grocery store aisles for months with pictures and highlights of this fairy tale event. And of course, news broke the following year uh, that uh, William and Kate were expecting their first child. Do you remember all the pomp and celebration that came attending the birth of one who is still third in line to the throne? Not even first in line to the throne. So much pomp, so much celebration, even here on the other side of the pond with a a government that doesn't really have anything to do with our form of government. Yet we felt the joy and celebrated with them. Well, this morning we find something similar, except for one thing. We find no pageantry for the King of Kings at his birth, at least not at home. It would be the equivalent of nobody celebrating the birth of little George, and yet everybody in America celebrating. That's what we find here. Though the news is met with indifference and dread in Jerusalem, We find kings, wise men from the far east coming to worship he who is king above all. I think this tells us that something is rotten in the state of Judah. Here's an apostate capital, one who, as the prophet Isaiah says, whose whole head is sick. And yet, despite all of their treachery, we find that something wondrous this way comes. Something wonderful coming to the people of God, the birth of God of our Savior. Now, as we look at this particular portion in scriptures, we're making our way through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew draws our attention to two unexpected surprises. We see this with his use of the word behold. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we we read the word behold and we just think of it as kind of an archaic, you know, uh, hangover, leftover from like old English. Oh, behold, something draweth nigh. The word actually just simply means, well, look at this So I think we would do well to look at this. As you see in verses 1 and 9, he says twice, Behold, first, to behold the wise men, and second, to behold the star. So we'll take this story in two parts. First, the wise men in verses 1 to 6, and secondly, the star of verses 7 to 12. By this point in the narrative, Herod has sat on the throne for nearly four decades For those of you who have ever read about Herod the Great, he was a vicious and ruthless king. He was a polygamist. He had as many as ten wives, but he was not just a polygamist. He was also paranoid. He murdered one of his wives, even several of his own sons, several sons who he had planned to be the heirs to the throne. He murdered them because he was afraid that they were going to kill him and take the throne, killing the heirs that he might retain power. Here is a king who is cruel and tyrannical. He is one who, if you read, again, other sources, ingratiated himself with Caesar, the emperor of Rome, who controlled this territory of Judea. At this point in time, Judea is not an independent kingdom. It is a puppet state of the Roman Empire. And yet, because of Herod's uh, loyalty and, uh, (coughs) excuse me, because of his loyalty to Rome, Caesar had kind of given him a, 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 a titular upgrade. He had upgraded his title from governor to king of Judea. Still subject to Rome, of course. Still a vassal of the emperor, but at least he is now master of his own domain, provided he provides enough taxes and troops to the emperor. But one of the things that we soon realize in reading from other portions of Scripture, such as Luke's account, is that Herod, though he sits on the throne, is not of David's line. Remember how the Gospel of Matthew begins? It begins with the genealogical record of who the true heir to the Davidic throne is. One who is the son of Abraham, one is who is the son of David, and what we find is that Herod is not a son of David. He is not even an Israelite. Herod is an Idumean. He is an Edomite. For those of you who know your Old Testament history, he is a descendant, not of Jacob, but of Esau. That should tell us something. Historically speaking, the Edomites were known for their treachery to the nation of Israel, continually betraying Israel, aligning with Israel's enemies, seeking Israel's destruction, rejoicing in her downfall. At one point when Israel is led into captivity, you'll see the Edomites standing along the side of the road, cheering on those who have led Israel into bondage. And Herod is a descendant of these people. An Edomite now sits on the throne as a puppet of the Roman Empire. And yet, as in the midst of this context, while Herod is reigning, one day, Matthew says, well, looky here, behold, wise men from the east. It would be just as well to translate that word as astrologers. Likely, men from Babylon or Persia, sorcerers known for their ability to read the stars and to interpret the dreams. Two major features we see in this passage. I think one one hears of the magi, One immediately thinks of Nebuchadnezzar's entourage in Daniel's day as Nebuchadnezzar surrounds himself with these sorts of uh, pagan wise men to interpret dreams for him. One might even think of Pharaoh's own magicians during Moses' day who did the same thing. That is the Greek word for these men, magi, men who dabble in practices explicitly forbidden in Scripture right that the practice of reading the stars to, to discern the future is prohibited according to Deuteronomy chapter 18 are these wise men to be trusted who would seek counsel from them and yet at the same time these magi know something that the king sitting on the throne does not that the true king has been born the messiah the christ See, there's a delicious irony in play here. Wise men coming from the east, they enter the capital city, the city of the king, right? If they are able to discern the stars properly, again, the Old Testament doesn't say that they're not going to derive false information. It simply says that practice is forbidden. And yet, if they're told that the true king of Israel has been born, it only makes sense that they would enter the capital city. But it's somewhat humorous, isn't it, that they go and they find the king sitting on the throne and they look the king in the face and they go, hey, where's the real king? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And it doesn't seem like they're doing it with any sense of maliciousness. There's like a real excitement. Hey, have you seen this? But you, do you realize how this would, would strike Herod? Perhaps his days were numbered. Hey, do you know where, where the king is? They ask with all honesty and integrity. They've read the stars, they've seen the signs. Right in the ancient world, astronomical wonders of the heavens, such as comets or meteors, were said to accompany the birth of great leaders. And they've seen this particular star. They have now left house and home to worship the king of all kings. And They've been led to the capital city of Jerusalem, and so they are led to the king's courts, and they asked the imposter on the throne, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod himself not being a descendant of the line of Judah. We see here the news has taken Herod somewhat by surprise. Here is a man so power-hungry, he has slain his own children. And now he hears that the true king foretold in the Scriptures has been born under his very nose. How do you think that would make him feel? We are told he is unsettled, troubled by the news. The news is met with a mixture of fear and anger. That's what that word, uh, to be troubled or unsettled, means. So interesting, I think we're reminded here of a similar story in Numbers 24, when another pagan magician named Balaam begins to speak true prophecy regarding the coming Messiah. Listen to these words spoken by yet another pagan wise man. I see him speaking of the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Judah. A scepter shall rise out of Israel to crush Moab and to dispossess Edom. Herod himself being an Edomite. It's a passage we see that's reflected in intertestamental literature as speaking of what the Messiah will come to do. He will come to dispossess the Edomites of the reign over Judah. The Messiah is and the promise is that he will strip Edom of its power. Herod the Edomite is understandably distressed. But we find here it's not just Herod who is upset. It says not just Herod, but all Jerusalem is troubled by the news as well. You see, despite Herod's maniacal rule, he has carved out this little niche in this great geopolitical arena. Not only for himself, but for the local aristocracy to live like kings. All, of course, at the expense of a heavily taxed citizenry. Of course, the local aristocracy are known by another name, as we will see later in the book. They are the Sadducees. Consider all that they would have to lose if the rumors were true. All of their ambition, all of their hypocrisy, the lies, the deception, the greedy pursuit of power, the spiritual oppression of the people, all that they have attained are now threatened by the birth of the true heir to the throne because if the true king has come, he will come and dispossess them of all their creaturely comforts. Here is a religious leadership blinded by their own wicked affections. And it will, in fact, be their own children that will seek to put Christ to death three decades later. It's the rightful heir to David's throne that has come. That means that the phony men in power, that their time will soon come to an end. And there's this great moment in Lord of the Rings, uh, in The Return of the King, uh, where uh, Aragorn uh, comes, uh, and, and Gandalf as well, they come uh, to the capital city of Gondor. And who's seated on the throne? Denethor. Denethor was not the king of the throne. He was a steward. He was supposed to keep everything in place until the true king would return to claim what was his. And of course, when Gandalf comes to make preparations for the return of Aragorn to the throne, Denethor refuses to give up power. And what is it that Gandalf says to Denethor? He turns to This is in the books. I don't think it's in the movies. He says, remember your place steward. This is exactly what we see in essence taking place here. The true king has come. He has been born. And the one seated on the throne does not want to relinquish power. Herod had no business sitting on the throne to begin with. But even then he had forgotten his true place. Israel's true king had come to its own and his own did not receive him. It's not just Herod who is upset by this. It says it is all Jerusalem. Jerusalem is unsettled but more unsettling is this that even the scribes and the priests had failed to notice that Christ had been born this was their jobs the scribes and the priests were the teachers of the law it was their job to interpret all that the old testament said concerning the promises of god that the messiah would one day come to deliver them from their sin they knew the promises yet they failed to see the sign Pagans who knew nothing of the Bible were able to see it loud and clear. Yet those who were raised in the the scriptures from day one had no clue what is taking place just 10 miles north of them in Bethlehem. So here I think Matthew is sketching out for us the spiritual state, not just of Herod, but the entire nation, at least of the capital city. It is one of murderous apostasy. Men who do not rejoice at the news that the Messiah has come. Rather, they receive the news unsettled. They find it troubling. What a dangerous position to be in. To know the scriptures and yet to carve out for oneself a sphere of influence, a little kingdom for oneself. And hope and pray that nothing comes to dethrone you from the life you have made for yourself. How many pastors today do that very same thing? Men who take office in a church to grab power for themselves and yet treat the flock as lambs for the slaughter. They don't do their job in in inculcating faith in the Messiah to come. Rather, they use it to carve out a sphere, a position of power for themselves. We've seen in the news over the past few years stories of this happening over and over again. The power-hungry pastors. Well, We see the same thing taking place here in Jerusalem. No wonder all Jerusalem is troubled by this news. They are filled with indifference and terror, indifferent to the things of heaven that Christ will bring upon His arrival, and terror that in His arrival, Christ might disrupt their own creaturely comforts. So Herod consults his own wise men on the matter, the scribes and the priests. Right here, we should find that the priests should know better than the pagans. Here, the scribes ought to have seen this coming long before any sorcerer would have. Yet the news of Christ's birth has caught them off guard. The Jews are blind, yet the Gentiles see it, and they are starstruck. Herod didn't know. According to Deuteronomy 17, the king of Israel should make a copy of the law for himself and memorize it. Herod has no clue what to make of this, and so he has to ask the experts. The priests and the scribes knew the right answer. Good for them. We read John chapter 7, we find even the commoner knows the answer to this one. Where is the Messiah to be born? Micah chapter 5 tells us. The Messiah, the son of David, is to be born in the town of Bethlehem. Not a fancy town by any stretch. It's not, a cap- it's not the capital city. It's not even a major commercial city. It's a small backwater village. Yet though seemingly insignificant, it is by no means the least of all the region of Judea. Because this is where the promised king will be born. A king who will shepherd well. This is just not simply another tyrant who will come to power and crush the people under his feet. As these false shepherds have done, here is a true shepherd, as the prophet Ezekiel promises, who will come and shepherd well to seek the lost, to bring back the stray, to bind up the injured, to strengthen the weak, and to destroy the fat and the strong who have fed upon the weak and the hurting, one who will come and bring judgment upon a wicked and apostate religious leadership. And yet for us, the reader, we find it unsettling that the priest hear that Christ is born. They know that he is to be born in Bethlehem. Now they receive news that he has been born in Bethlehem just 10 miles away. And what do they do? Absolutely nothing. Herod calls the, the, uh, the Magi and says, well, go, go find him out for us and come back and let us know how it is. Isn't it striking that none, not a single one of the scribes or priests are said to accompany the Magi? If this was your entire job, to inquire when the Messiah would arrive and you're told here he is, 10 miles north of you, here. here he is, he's in independence. Okay, well great, well just let me know. Go <laughs> strive up there and let me know how it is. Bring back word. This really tells you the spiritual condition of the religious leadership. The heir has been born. Where's the pomp? Where's the ostentation? Where's the celebration? It's not a peep coming from the capital city. Only indifference at best. and A murderous duplicity at worst. That's the first surprise in the story. Astromancers have come to worship Christ. Yet at the same time, Israel's king wants Christ dead. And the priests don't want Christ at all. Well, there's a second surprising statement that we see here as well, not just the wise men, but the star. We see that here in verses 7 to 12. Matthew tells us of Herod's duplicity. He wants to find Christ. In fact, he wants to find Christ as much as the Magi do, but for totally different reasons. The pagans want to worship Christ. Herod wants to murder him. So he tricks them into doing all the legwork. He says, well, you know, find out where he is and on your way back. Let me know so I can worship him as well. It seems that the wise men are blissfully ignorant of Herod's devices, and so they agree. And notice this, as soon as that they leave Jerusalem, the star appears again. Now remember, the star has been leading them all this way. it's led them to Jerusalem, but they don't know where to go. So, hey, they make a pit stop at the capital city, they go to the throne and they ask where he's located. The scribes tell them to Bethlehem, so they begin their making their way, and well, as Matthew says, looky here, the star appears again. And it leads them not just to the town of Bethlehem, the star leads them to the very house where Christ is living. You read earlier commentators, good commentators in fact, you read Calvin or Matthew Henry, they think the star was a common, a a natural phenomenon divinely guided uh, to lead them along the way. certainly possible. But what star leads men thousands of miles to a city only to stop and hang over Jerusalem? Only to appear again and then lead them to a particular house? I have not seen a comet or meteor do something like that. It's not like a comet to hit the brakes, to disappear, to reappear, to direct and guide one to an individual home. I don't think my GPS can even do that. This is no ordinary star. So what is it? Again, we have to have the Old Testament as our spectacles. That is the proper lens through which we are to read the story of Matthew. If you look back and you read the Old Testament, you find that both, both races, both the race of men and the race of angels are both called the sons of God. And in the Bible, stars are often illustrative pictures signifying the sons of God. Sometimes stars depicting uh, redeemed humanity, stars being an image that depicts the angelic race. You think of Job Job chapter 37, for instance, when he, he speaks of at the, uh, t- taking place at the creation of the world, Job says this, that the stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. If we're familiar with Hebrew poetry, it's what we call a a, a poetic parallelism that you're to understand stars and sons of God as being two different words that describe the same thing. Psalm chapter 148, the psalmist incorporates angels and stars together, calling upon them to praise the one who made them all. You think of Judges chapter 5 with the Song of Deborah. Deborah sees Israel's conflict with Canaan as a massive cosmic battle where she says that the stars from heaven came to fight against Sisera's army. Are, are we talking about literal stars? What would happen if a single star came, you know, within a hundred miles of the earth? We would burn up. I think that seems to be signifying something different than what we today refer to as Stars. You see, the prophets, Isaiah in Isaiah 13, or Ezekiel in chapter 32, or Daniel in Daniel chapter 8, speak of the stars falling from the heavens as a picture to depict the cosmic overthrow of spiritual powers that come when the Messiah appears on the scene. And in Revelation chapter 1, John sees seven stars. And Christ himself speaks to John and says, These seven stars are the angeloi, they are the angels, the messengers. Of the churches. I think speaking of the pastors, but again, the sons of God. We're even reminded of the Exodus, aren't we, in chapter 13? How does the Lord lead Israel out of slavery? By the angel of the Lord, who at times is described as the angel of the Lord, and yet at other times is described as a burning pillar of fire. I think the point is this that the two are used somewhat interchangeably i don't think that this is an ordinary star stars do not stop and start they do not ascend and descend not ordinary stars they do not become visible and then disappear where they are seen by some yet hidden by others hidden to others rather i think the star is an angelic messenger leading the gentiles through the eastern wilderness just as the angel of the lord led israel out of slavery into the presence The king of kings. The Magi are led to the home of baby Jesus to worship at the feet of this great king. We do not know the number of the wise men. We're only told of three different types of uh, offerings that this entourage brings, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This would not have been the night of Jesus' birth. Joseph and Mary are said to be in their home, not in the cattle stall anymore. And given what Herod does next week, as we'll find out, Jesus is somewhere under two years of age. Because what is it that Herod does? He commands for all children under the age of two to be killed. So this takes place sometime after Jesus' birth, but he's still a toddler. Exactly when we don't know, but we do know this. Then, coming to see the king, the Magi come. They come not to a castle, but to a cottage. But when they see him, their joy is boundless. Uh, the, the, the Greek phrasing here is very awkward. They rejoiced to great joy exceedingly. Uh, you know, you think of, if we were to outline this uh, as like an English sentence, and this was your eighth grade uh, English class, you got subject, verb, adverb, uh, direct object, adjective, where you have the, the verb, the adverb, the direct object, and the adjective are all words of joy. They joyed joy with great joy joyfully. The manner and the matter, everything about this, you know, whereas all of Jerusalem hears the news that Christ has been born, and they're unsettled, that mixture of fear and anger. And here's the exact opposite. This is joy unmixed with the Magi. The priests and scribes hear Jesus' birth, and they experience, they're overcome by emotions of fear and rage. These pagan warlocks see Jesus and they're overwhelmed in unadulterated delight. And the Magi have come to give Christ in the cottage what they could not give and what they did not give the phony king in the castle. The wise men do not worship Herod. They do not give Herod any gifts, despite the outward pomp and splendor as he is enthroned in the capital city. And yet now they come to a backwater cottage and give a toddler gifts fit for a king, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very fitting, these three gifts, even as the Old Testament speaks of the gifts and homage that will be paid to David's greater son. Psalm 72, for instance, this is Solomon, and a psalm that he wrote saying this, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river, that river being the Euphrates, that river that marks the boundary of Babylon and Persia, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba, tribes that were renowned for their wisdom, may they bring gifts. May all kings fall uh, fall down before him. May all the nations serve him and bring him gifts of gold. Or you think of Isaiah chapter 60. Again, speaking of the tribes of Sheba, again, this uh, people group that were renowned for their wisdom. May uh, Sheba come. And bring gold and frankincense to bear good news, the praises of the Lord. See, the Gentiles have failed to see what the Jewish leadership has failed to see. And the Gentiles see it and they worship. They are led like Israel through the wilderness. They are even divinely warned in a dream of Herod's treachery. The same way that Joseph and Mary are divinely warned of Herod's treachery in the next passage. And they are led safely home to bear this good news that the king of kings has finally arrived. And yet, as we look at the story and we consider everything that's going on, everything is topsy-turvy. Nothing is as it ought to be. Or at least, nothing is as we expect it to be. The first topsy-turvy thing is this. Good news comes to Jerusalem. It comes first to Jerusalem yeah, not only the king but the whole city is troubled. Why is this the case? Second thing to consider, that's topsy-turvy. The king in Jerusalem is not only troubled, he wants to put Christ to death. Third thing, while Israel wants Christ killed, the gentiles want Christ worship, worshiped. And finally, the Jews might be blind to everything that's going on, but it's gentiles who see. This is not what we'd expect. At least not at first. The the expectation of Israel has finally arrived. Jesus comes to his own. He came to his own, as John said, and his own simply shrugged. They did not receive him. Nothing is as it should be. Christ came into his own, and they simply didn't care. He has arrived, and they cannot even see the signs. And those who do see the signs, finally at least, they either don't care or they want him dead. And yet pagans, astrologers, warlocks, sorcerers, common they want to see Christ worship. The answer is scandalous. Which, which, if I could put it like this, who would you want your kid to listen? Who would be the wiser man? The teacher of the law, the theologian, or the palm reader? That's scandalous. I think we since we know the story so often, we don't realize what a scandal this is. But it's the same scandal Jesus tells over and over again. Who is it that walks away justified from the temple, Jesus asks? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Over and over and over again, we see an inverse of the very thing that we'd expect. The wise men should be the teachers of the law. It is the theologians that should be the wise men. And yet they're the greatest fools. They're the patsies of the story. And the very people that we would tell our children to stay away from end up being the ones who hear the news and with what little they have knowledge of, they hold on to it. They abandon house and home. They leave their own home country for a destination they have never seen. Simply to come and worship at the feet of the king of the kings. Here's a nation... Israel that looks squeaky clean on the outside. Religious leaders who know their Bibles, they know the answer. You're able to go to them and say, hey, okay, I've got, I've got a Jeopardy question for you. Where should the Messiah be born? And they can win trivia night every Tuesday night, any day of the week. And yet with all this Bible knowledge, it fails to change them inwardly. There is no fostered hope or expectation They might know all the data about who Christ is, but there is no faith in Christ. There is no longing to see him. They might look religious, but here is a nation that looks more like a house of slavery. Here is a nation that looks more like Egypt of old, as we will see next week. In fact, as Jesus says, it is a nation worse than Sodom. Because Jesus, when he enters his ministry Coming to the sons and children of these religious leaders three decades later, he said, Sodom, if they, in the day of judgment, they will look on you and say, why did you not repent? If we saw the works that you saw, we would have turned in a heartbeat. This is a nation that looks really good on the outside, but inwardly, it is as apostate as it could ever get. Here is a nation that is so wicked that when Christ returns from his exile from Egypt, he will find a nation overrun not by Romans, but by demons. And I think Matthew is inviting us to consider this particular question. Who do we look like more in this story? The theologians? Or the astromancers? The sorcerers? Be careful how you answer that. The point is not to say, well, go practice sorcery. That's not the point. The question is, who is it that's to be modeled and uh, to to imitate? Paul writes this in his letter to Corinth. Knowledge puffs up. How dangerous it is to know your Bible inside and out and still to fail to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus warns the Pharisees of this very same problem. He says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, which is true. But then Jesus says, and the Scriptures are those things that testify of me. The religious leadership has confused you know, the, the signpost for the destination They've they've come to the green sign on the side of the highway that says seven thousand miles to Disney World, and they've confused that for actually making it to the Magic Kingdom. Jesus, you search the scriptures, but the scriptures are to point you to Me. You're looking at uh, treating the scriptures like a mirror, as if you you just look back and see yourself. How many of us? boast in our Bible knowledge, and yet fail to pursue Christ for the sake of joy? How many of us sit under sermons week in and week out, and yet have hearts that remain unchanged, where our minds are filled with knowledge, and yet our affections continue to stagnate and grow deaf to the things of heaven? Religion is good, we tell ourselves, so long as it does not disrupt my own earthly comforts but if anything disrupts this little paper kingdom I've carved out for myself, I want nothing to do with it. Isn't this the very thing that we find Jesus having to address every time he confronts not just the leadership but the people? As he tells the rich man, when he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, sell everything. There's this thing that's standing between you and me. Seek first the kingdom of God. In his righteousness, Christ says. That's the true kind of theologian. That is the true wise man. The question we have to ask ourselves are: are we theologians of a different sort? Are we theologians of a lesser sort? I think Matthew commends to us these pagan wise men who, just like the saints of old, walked by faith and not by sight. They did not know where the star was leading them. They did not know where this angel was taking them but they left house and home seeking a better country, seeking the king of that country, abandoning all that they knew to worship the one true and living God with hearts sanctified by faith. I think the Magi are being presented as a model to imitate in a lively way, in a real way. But I think it leads us finally to ask ourselves one more question. What is it that we're supposed to give? Is this just a sermon where you're saying, hey, you should give more more money to the the, the offering plate? I think Paul gives us a better answer. Romans chapter 12, that we are to give ourselves wholly and fully. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. We're being commended to worship Christ and saying that Christ receives the worship of whoever will come and fall at his feet, but what he expects is choice worship, the choicest offerings where he calls us to give, not merely of ourselves or of our pockets, but to give ourselves to him in simplicity and sincerity of faith. To recognize that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that we should have to desire above or beyond or before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the true heir to the throne and he is the king who does and who will shepherd his people well in a way that will outflank and outstrip Herod and the religious leaders of his day. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would use your word uh, to set our hearts on fire that we might uh, truly worship you with sincerity and that we would give ourselves to you uh, wholly and fully because you gave your, your son to us wholly and fully. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.